I went to uh, high school in western Pennsylvania, and one of my fondest memories in high school were Tuesday and Friday evenings, because Tuesday and Friday evenings were basketball nights. Uh, January, February, March, basketball got us through the, the long, cold winters uh, of the Pittsburgh area. I love playing basketball. We had a pretty good program. Love my teammates, the sense of camaraderie, uh, the competition, uh, the coach was great. I just had a wonderful experience. Every Tuesday and Friday evening, I can just picture in my mind our pregame ritual. We would all gather together. We're all amped up for, for, for the game, and we would put our right hands into the middle in a circle, and we would do this every single Tuesday, every single Friday, and here's how it would go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For now is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it would, it would go with like this, this rhythmic kind of amped up unity as we, as we said it together. Now, to my knowledge, none of the players were Christians. I certainly wasn't. But it was a part of our rituals, what we did. And yes, it brought together uh, some unity as a team. But as I thought about it years later, it was really a mechanical rote recitation, reciting of the Lord's Prayer. Without understanding, without true application. The, the Lord's Prayer had become familiar to all of us, yet distant at the same time. Time. In his very helpful book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, Tim Keller writes this. The Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Jesus Christ gave it to us as the key to unlock all the riches of prayer. Yet it is an untapped resource partially because it is so familiar. And then he goes on to share this illustration. Imagine you are, for the first time, visiting someone who has a home or an apartment near train tracks. You are sitting there in conversation when suddenly the train comes roaring by just a few feet from where you are sitting, and you jump to your feet in alarm and say, what was that? Your friend, the resident of the house, responds, what was what? You answer, that sound. I, I thought something was coming through the wall. Oh, that, she says. That's just a train. You know, I guess I've gotten used to it so much that I don't notice it anymore. And so it is with the Lord's Prayer. Upon reciting it in a, in a rote, kind of mechanical way, it, it can become so familiar that we no longer hear it. When I became a Christian as a sophomore in college, two years after my high school basketball playing days, I can remember steering away from saying the Lord's Prayer. I didn't want to fall back into the mindless reciting that I had known for years in high school. Kind of a, a mindless heaping up of words that Jesus actually cautions us against right before the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. He cautions against mechanical praying, mindless mechanical praying apart from meaning and authenticity. So I was now avoiding the Lord's Prayer. The pendulum, the pendulum had, in fact, swung to the opposite extreme, and I was doing something equally unhelpful. How do we think rightly about the Lord's Prayer? How do we apply it rightly to our lives? 
Well, the Lord's Prayer is intended to be a pattern for our praying. It gives us categories of things to pray for. Yes, you can say it verbatim. There's meaning in that. But Jesus actually gives us the Lord prayer, Lord's Prayer as a template, as a pattern of the kinds of things citizens in his kingdom ought to pray for. And so what we're going to do over the next two weeks is break it down, break those categories down, and think strategically about them that we might pray for those things, for those categories in like manner. We've mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount is the ethic of the kingdom of Jesus, what it looks like, the qualities and the characteristics, what our lives are to be about as subjects of the king. What we find here is that prayer is in fact one of the great privileges of being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Communication with the creator of the universe is what we're invited to in the Lord's Prayer. Prayer is a great privilege for kingdom citizens. We're going to take two weeks and unpack the Lord's Prayer. Let's turn to that prayer in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 6, and the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 811. Page 811. If you're here today and you need a copy of the scripture, we love to give you a free Bible. I mention this every Sunday in the lobby. There's a bookshelf there closest to the restroom. Many hardback black Bibles. Please take one if you need one. If a friend needs one, we would love for you to get one for your friend as well. Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice this is a, a prayer embedded in a, in a sermon, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the ethic of his kingdom. It's strategically so because this is to be a part of his people's lives. Prayer is part and parcel of being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. It is a privilege to pray to the king of the universe. Now, within our broader sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, a series that we've entitled The Way of the King, Okay, that's what we're to do as followers of Jesus. If you're here today and you've trusted in him, you are following in the ways of your king. And he gives us here in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 the way of his kingdom. And so that's what we're seeking to do over these several months. We'll finish up this series in May. But within this broader series of the Sermon on the Mount, we see in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, a mini-series of sorts. Jesus is emphasizing a particular theme within the broader Sermon on the Mount. And that theme is beware religious showmanship. Beware practicing your spiritual disciplines to be seen and praised by other people. That's danger. That's danger. It's rooted in pride. You're seeking after the praise of people. And that's all the reward you'll ever get. There's an ironic empty reality that when that's what you're after, the praise of people, that's all you're ever going to get. And it is woefully insufficient. It will not sustain us. So Jesus introduces this little mini-series in Matthew 6, verse 1. We've been in this uh, for a couple weeks. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father 
who is in heaven. And then he goes on to give us three spiritual disciplines or three ways you can practice righteousness. Giving, praying, and fasting. So we've covered giving, we've covered praying, and in a few weeks we'll cover fasting. Three spiritual disciplines. And Jesus is just warning of our motivation behind doing those things. Why do we ultimately practice these spiritual disciplines? Is it to be seen by people or to draw near to him? The latter must be our motivation. But notice what Jesus does when he covers praying. He gives us a little expansion of his teaching. He provides us a sermon sidebar, if you will. Within his warning about not practicing prayer for the praise of people, he goes a step further and shares a template for us on how to pray. He gives us a very helpful example or a pattern of how we can pray. And the Lord's Prayer is best used as a pattern, not as a ritualistic, mechanical prayer that we pray verbatim every time. You can do that. But what is meant here is to use these categories to guide your own praying. As we scan the Lord's Prayer, we can identify this noticeable structure to it. It has an introductory address. Our Father in heaven. That's the introductory address. That's who we're praying to. Our Father in heaven. Followed by five petitions to God. Two of those petitions are for God. And three of those petitions are for us. And so we have a little hand up here on the screen. This is, this is helpful. This is simple. This is in uh, Stephen Smallman's book, The Walk, Steps for New and Renewed Followers of Jesus. And so the address, the introductory address, is the, the palm, and then the five petitions are in the fingers. So we're going to cover two of them, pinky and the ring finger today, and then next week we're going to cover the, the next three, our daily bread, our forgiveness, our guidance. Those are for us. The first two are for for God. And they all flow out of a relationship with our Father. They, they flow out of our sonship or our daughtership. We are invited to pray to our Father when he adopts us as his sons and daughters. Okay, so you can think of these petitions flowing out of our relationship, our sonship or our daughtership with the Father. The first two positions are for God. For God's honor, hallowed be thy name, and for God's kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's our, our topic for today. And then for next week, the final three petitions are for us. Give us our daily bread. And then for our forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then for spiritual guidance, finally. Lead us not to, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're going to take our time in this prayer, drawing out these categories so that we can better apply them in our own prayers. Let's unpack the introductory address first. Our Father in heaven, something that we can pass by if we're in a rush, but we're invited here to slow down. These four words in the introduction are significant. They speak of intimacy, they speak of community, and they speak of authority. All in those four words, they speak of intimacy, they speak of community, and they speak of authority. First, intimacy. The word father is intended to incite feelings of tenderness, of kindness, of closeness, warmth, and intimacy. The way a loving father cares for and protects his children. When I think of the word father, good things come to mind. My father 
who is still living in western Pennsylvania, went to all those basketball games. He never missed a basketball game. Now, that's kind of a rare thing. My dad worked like 60 hours a week as a pharmacist. He like prioritized his kids. He always figured out a way to kind of finagle his schedule so that he could be there for his kids. He was a tender father, a present father, an engaged father. I have warm thoughts when I read these words, our father. However, that is not the case for many people in this fallen world. And it can become a barrier in thinking rightly about the fatherhood of God and praying to our father. We live in a fallen world where fathers have abused their roles, abdicated their roles, harmed the very people they're called to draw near to and care for and protect. And I just want to encourage you, if that's your situation, if you grew up with a lousy, disengaged, harmful father, we see you. We want to encourage you. We want to support you and to point you towards your heavenly father who is perfect, who will never fail you, who will never harm you in any way. But I just want to say at the outset, that can be a barrier as thinking, thinking about the Lord's prayer. Our own fallen fathers can color our vision and view of the Lord's prayer. It can be difficult to say our father. Know this, the introduction of the Lord's prayer is full of good news because as harmful as some of our relationships with our earthly fathers have been, Jesus Christ is inviting us into intimacy with his father that he has merited for us, that he's achieved for us. He wants us to say with him, our father. He's inviting us into intimacy with the relationship that he has with his heavenly father. We must let Jesus' relationship with the father shape our understanding of the word father. Let Jesus redeem the word father for you if need be. If this is a place of pain for you, Jesus can minister to you in the pain and give you a hope and an encouragement of what fathering is all about. In the Gospels, what was Jesus' relationship with his father like? Oh, it was tender and it was close. It was devoted and it was intimate. That's what he's inviting us to a picture of trust and love. And what was the only place and only time in the Gospels when that relationship wasn't close? When was it? Brothers and sisters, it was at the cross where Jesus hung ashamed, quivering, naked. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our shame, bearing our sin, experiencing a sense of forsakenness from his Father for us, to redeem us, to bring us closer to his Father, to reconcile our broken relationship. The only place that there wasn't closeness was when Jesus was on the cross. But friends, if you trust in that substitutionary sacrificial work on the cross that Jesus did for you, you are welcomed in to intimacy and closeness with Jesus and with his Father. That's the good news embedded here 
in the Lord's Prayer. We can say our Father by faith in Jesus because we are invited into the relationship that he has with his Father because he's taking care of our biggest problem, our sin that separates us from the Father. So the introduction of the Lord's Prayer speaks of intimacy. It also speaks of community. Notice the pronoun that begins this introduction. It is the first person, plural, possessive pronoun, our. The Lord's Prayer assumes a community. It assumes a plurality. It assumes multiple people petitioning God, multiple adopted sons and daughters through the work of Jesus. We are a part of his family, and we are praying as a collective whole, praying as a plurality, our Father. We pray with one another on Sunday mornings in small groups and one-on-one accountability relationships across a cup of coffee. The Lord's Prayer assumes a deep community of people praying together. This doesn't mean that that's the only way we pray as a community. In fact, we talked last week, Jesus invites us into times of personal, private prayer with him alone. But there's also times of communal, corporate prayer like we do together on Sunday mornings. We can say, Our Father, because Jesus has adopted us as his sons and daughters through his person, through his work, through his life, death, and resurrection. We say, our Father. We're invited into a community, and that is the local church. So the introduction of the Lord's Prayer speaks of intimacy. It speaks of community. It also speaks of authority. Where do we see God's authority in the introduction of the Lord's Prayer? Well, we see it in the place of God's dwelling. Our Father in heaven. God's throne room is in heaven. He sits enthroned above all earthly powers, sovereignly seeing, superintending everything that goes on in his creation. He possesses all the power, all the authority over his created order. He is king over all that he has created, and that is good news, and it's a motivation for us to pray. Why? Because this king can do something about our miserable circumstances. Do you believe that? Because when you do, you're going to pray to the king of creation. Now, it may not come in your timing, in the way that you think it should, but that makes sense because our thoughts are not his thoughts. If you are human and he is God, you would expect not to understand his ways at times. The Proverbs say his, his ways are not our ways. They are above us. But you can trust him because he has proven himself faithful over and over again. He sits enthroned in heaven above all earthly powers, and he has the, the ability to work in your situation. So the introduction of the Lord's Prayer, this address speaks of intimacy, it speaks of community, and it speaks of authority. Now let's move on and unpack the first two petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Remember, there are five petitions in the Lord's Prayer. All five are addressed to God. The first two are for God, and the final three are for us. The final three are for next week, but we're going to cover the first two this week. The first petition in the Lord's Prayer is for the honor of God. A prayer for God's honor. Notice what Jesus says hallowed be your name. Uh, the word hallowed is an antiquated word, a, a dated word. It's an older English word that simply means let something be holy. Hallowed be your name. Lord, let your name be marked out as holy 
treated, viewed, approached as holy. Father, let your name be holy. It seems like an odd request, doesn't it? Isn't God's name already holy? Why are his children invited to pray this way? Why do we need to pray for it to be holy? Well, the idea here is for God's name to be treated as holy in and through our daily lives, in and through the message of our lips and the message of our lives. May it be treated, broadcasted as holy through our lives. God doesn't need any help making himself more holy, but he desires that we, his created beings, reflect his holiness. And so that's what's at play here. Hallowed be your name. Let it be seen and broadcasted as holy in my life, in the message of my lips and in the message of my life. May your name not be misused on my lips through inappropriate language. Embedded in the Lord's Prayer is the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not speak his name in vain, in a hollow, empty way. Uh, speaking the Lord's name in such an irreverent way, is, it's, it's actually harmful to us and to people who hear it. Using the Lord's name in any other way than direct address is an inappropriate use of his name. We, we teach our kids this all the time. They love to go to Joey's Park in Belmont. They love to spend time with friends. And it's oftentimes a teaching, teaching moment afterwards because, you know, you, you're going to hear all kinds of language. We live in a, in a culture that, that uses God's name flippantly. And we just tell our, our kids, unless you're praying to God or reading his name in the scripture, in a Bible study, or hearing it in a sermon, we, we don't. We don't use it any other way unless it's a prayer to him or in, unless it's reading it in the Bible. And so when your friends say, oh, my God, oh, my God, look at this watch that I have. That's, that, that's not good. That's not good, Cecile. That's not good. But we, we Christians say that. And so I'd ask you just as you, as you pray the Lord's Prayer, evaluate how you're using God's name. Is it revered in your heart and on your tongue? Are you using it only in genuine prayer and in a study of the word. That's when we use his name. That's how we honor it. So part of this position is, Father, may your name not be misused in the message of our lips. But part of it also is, Father, may your name not be misused in the message of our lives. So if you're a Christian, you bear God's name. You bear his banner. You are reflecting Christ in the world all day long you and I through our actions are either contributing to God's glory or detracting from God's glory all day long we are sending out a message that's either glorifying God or it's detracting from his glory and through the Lord's prayer we are petitioning for God's power his glory to be radiating from our lives we, just, we must be thoughtful about how we live. How you live your life matters in this world. If you're a Christian, you're saying something about God, his character, through the way that you live your life. It's in keeping with we've, what we've already studied earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that the world may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. One of the ways that we do that is through how we live. 
We're, giving a, we're having a chance to give glory to God through how we live, that the world may see that we are children of the true king. So may God's name be hallowed in your life, on your lips, through your speech, and in your life, through your actions. May you, God, be displayed as holy in and through our lives. The first petition is for God's honor to be upheld. The second petition is for God's kingdom to be advanced. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a prayer. This is a petition for the lordship of God. Now, some separate this sentence into, into two different petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done. However, it's reasonable to view them as one united petition. God's will being done is the very definition of his kingdom coming. What is God's kingdom? It is his right rule and his good ways being lived out and followed by his people. His right rule and his good ways being lived out through his people. And the only way that this is possible is when we look in faith to the king, to God's son, Jesus Christ. We cannot do it on our own. We need the empowerment of the king. So God's kingdom is reflected as people follow and trust in the king, Jesus Christ. This is a lordship petition. It's asking for God to extend his majestic power, his unparalleled rule over every corner of our lives, our thought life, our speech, our emotions, our relationships, our occupations, our finances, our sexuality, our suffering, in fact. All of it falls under the lordship of Jesus. Are we living our lives under his good and right authority? Are we saying, thy will be done, or are we in truth saying, my will be done? That's what this is all about. Are we saying, thy will be done, O God, or are we ultimately saying, no, it's my will be done? This is a heart check for us. Are you living under the lordship of Jesus? A Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper put it like this, there is not one square inch in the whole of creation, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, mine. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Do we believe that? Do our lives reflect that? The Lord's Prayer is an invitation to do some soul searching. In what ways... Am I crying out, my will be done, when I should be crying out, thy will be done? Your kingdom come, your will be done, is a lordship petition. It's a difficult prayer to pray, isn't it? Survey the landscape of your life. What is that unsurrendered place for you? What are those unsurrendered places for you only you can answer that question i mean god's going to answer it one day when you stand before him but in this life only you can answer that question what is unsurrendered in my life what am i saying my will be done with a white knuckle grip instead of saying with open hand thy will be done
all of us have unsurrendered places in our lives. Our pocketbooks, our politics, our relationships. What is it for you? Lord's Prayer is a regular opportunity and invitation for God to shine his soul-searching light into the deep recesses of our hearts, exposing those unsurrendered places and inviting us to surrender them to the Lordship of Christ. That is the healthiest place for us, the place of surrender. One of the most painful places this is lived out is through our suffering. So I want to speak to that just momentarily. Unless we are profoundly certain that God is our Father, we will never be able to say, thy will be done, particularly in the area of pain and suffering. Only if we trust God as our good Father can we ask for grace to endure in the face of affliction. Do you trust that God is sovereign over your suffering? Do you believe that he has power over your pain? This is the one, one of the, the key tests of our trust in his lordship. Do we trust that God is sovereign over our suffering? Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, was no stranger to suffering. And he spoke of seeing God's sovereign hand before behind all of his suffering. He knew what it was to be bedridden because of depression, couldn't get out of bed, sick with gout in his feet, suffering physically, suffering emotionally, suffering spiritually, yet through it all he could say, thy will be done. Spurgeon writes this, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, not sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and of his, their quantity. If you drink of the river of affliction near where it pours out upon you, you will find it bitter and offensive to the taste. But if you will trace that river back to its source, where it rises at the foot of the throne of God, you will find its waters to be sweet and health-giving. As long as I trace my pain to accident, my bereavement to mistake, my loss to another's wrong, my discomfort to an enemy, and so on, I am of the earth, earthly, fleshly, and I shall break my teeth with gravel stones. But when I rise to my God and see his hand at work in my every suffering, I grow calm. Friends, that is what it means to trust in the sovereignty of God through your suffering. He knows them all your every affliction. He is working in them. He has power over them. He has purpose through them. Trust in the sovereign God who's at work. Let it endear your heart to him and guard you from growing bitter toward him. A very important question is how can we be sure that God is trustworthy in the midst of our pain, our trials, our affliction? What proof do we have of his faithfulness? Well, friends, this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, that is actually repeated by Jesus outside of the Lord's Prayer. Where else does Jesus say to his Father, thy will be done? 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's experiencing the weight of human sin pressing down on his shoulders, what does he cry out in those moments of desperate prayer? Not my will be done, but thy will be done. In the moment in Gethsemane, he is surrendering his will to his heavenly father. Why is he doing that? Because it's part of his father's plan to redeem sinners like you and like me. So we can trust that God is faithful, that he has a purpose in pain, because he, has a, he had a purpose in his son's pain, and that purpose was to redeem us. If God was willing to give up his own son to redeem us, we can trust him in his every purpose. It's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8. How much more will God give us all things if he has given us his son? We have ample evidence to trust in God, a sovereign God who's at work in his people's pain. We can say, thy will be done no matter what we face in this life. Thy will be done. I'm going to trust in you because you're working. You have a purpose in my pain. You have power over my affliction. The first two petitions are for God, for his honor, for his holiness, and for his kingdom, for his lordship. So what we find is that praying for God puts us in the right frame of mind to pray for us. It's strategic that these first two petitions are God-centered because it puts us in the right frame of mind than to pray for ourselves. Once you get that straight the God-centeredness in your life, you're now in a position to pray rightly for yourself and for others. The Lord's Prayer is strategic. Eyes on God first, and then eyes on yourself. Eyes on God first, his holiness and his kingdom. Now we're in a position to pray for our needs, our daily bread, for our forgiveness, and for our spiritual guidance. They teach us first to bring our worship before God, before our wishes. Worship first, then our wishes come next. They help us to do what James, the brother of Jesus, speaks in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The first two positions of the Lord's Prayer are for God, his honor, and his kingdom. They help us pray rightly with pure motives. Tim Keller writes in this book I quoted earlier uh, on prayer, God-centeredness comes first in the Lord's Prayer because it heals the heart of its self-centeredness. Self-centeredness curves us in on ourselves and distorts all of our vision. Only after our vision is reframed and clarified by the greatness of God are we in a position to pray rightly for our own needs and the needs of the world. This is the wisdom of the Lord's Prayer. It lifts our eyes to God first, his power and his greatness, and then prepares us to pray for ourselves and for others. And so that's next week. Our needs, our forgiveness, and our spiritual guidance. Prayer is a great privilege for kingdom citizens. And over these next few weeks, just let the Lord invite you through his word to press into prayer, to take hold of that privilege, no matter what you're walking through, whether that's pain, blessing, or some combination, it's a great privilege. Lean into him through praying. Let's go to him now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, your grace, for the reality of your holiness, your hallowedness. 
May your name be hallowed in our lives and on our lips. May your will be done in and through us. Lord, teach us to trust in you in the midst of difficulty and affliction and upheaval to know that you are enthroned above all earthly powers. You are worthy of our trust. Thank you for proving yourself faithful, most supremely at the cross, where you gave your son sacrificially in our place. It would help us to follow Jesus, to trust in him, to give our lives to him, and invite others along that path as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.